the swamp. This is DC, bitches. I feel like Donald Trump. I say what I want. I go where I want. You are in the swamp with Marcella Aberdeen and Karina Gutierrez. Hi, this is Marcella. And this is Karina. And welcome to the swamp. Today we have a very special episode with a very special guest. Um, we're in an undisclosed downtown location in the swamp. We finally made it out of Georgetown. Yeah, we finally made it out after, after six weeks. <laughs> after six weeks. Yeah. Um, we're actually here with Carlos Gutierrez, who, full disclosure, is related. Uh, related to, I've known him for 31 years. 31 years. Karina's just known him for 31 years. Just wanted to put That's that full, out That's full disclosure. <laughs> um... Carlos is a was the former uh, Secretary of Commerce, 35th U.S. Secretary of Commerce from 2005 to 2009 under George W. Bush. Um, he is also the former CEO of the Kellogg Company. Um, he is currently the co-chair of the Albright Stonebridge Group uh, strategic advisory firm. So thank you so much, Carlos, for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. So we're going to start out with uh, our, our new segment, Swamp Tea, because there's a bit, bit of gossip going on. And then we're going to get into um, Carlos's background, and we're going to talk about Cuba today in light of Trump's announcement that he's going to roll back some of Obama's policy towards uh, Cuba. So, yeah, let's start out with uh, swamp, swamp Tea. Okay, so first of all, uh, Dennis Rodman was in North Korea again. And I heard he gave a minister the art of the deal, which is Donald Trump's book. So what do you, so what do you guys think? Do you think uh, Rodman had anything to do with the fact that the the, the U.S. Um, citizen that was locked up came back? Is he doing some backhanded diplomacy? <laughs> I think Dennis Rodman does not get enough credit. This guy is a brilliant strategist. He can you? I mean, it takes it took Clinton how long to get? Um, who was it, Lisa Ling's sister or something out of North Korea? And it was like very intense. All Dennis Rodman had to do was give him a book, you know, and he then the you know U.S. citizens out. How easy is that? So I think he's brilliant. Yeah, it's the fourth time he's been there. Fourth time. And and the first time you recall, he came out on CNN in the morning, mm-hmm. which was at night in in Pyongyang, and he had been drinking a little bit too much. So it was one of those. <laughs> wild interviews that I'm sure he regrets, and then he disappeared for a while, and now he's back. Oh, that's great. I plan to look that up, that inter- like yeah. interview oh, up. Y- that's going to sh- be hilarious. That. Yeah, you should see that. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, he's been there four times. I mean, he's a friend of, what does he say? He's a friend of Kim Jong. Like, he's yes. a friend of the... And he said he was there to open a door, so he really takes his uh, his role as an ambassador very seriously. I mean, I have to agree with Summer, like any type of diplomacy um, in that type of way, I think more power to it, more power to Dennis Rodman. Like, why not, you know, have citizen diplomats go and thaw, thaw some ice? Secretary of State in the making. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, anything could happen, you know, Trump's president, anything could happen. Exactly. Um, Some more swamp tea. Apparently, Vladimir Putin has offered Comey, James Comey, safe haven um, after, after what's gone so yeah, After, really stirring things up here in the swamp. I think he's just. Do you think he's just trying to stir the swamp, or do you think he's actually, you know, serious about offering Comey safe haven? 
I think I think he's he's that serious about it. If you notice Putin, that guy doesn't mess around. Okay, he doesn't joke, and when he does joke, you're still scared. So it's it's he's he's a little bit he's also if you notice like Putin is, has is might be a little bit autistic or has Asperger's or something because that guy doesn't know social cues. So when he's saying Comey, we offer you safe haven here, I think he means it. I think Comey should go. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's having a great time. I think he's having, think he's having the time of his life. Uh, you know, at one point people are asking who's the most powerful man in the world or who is, uh, you know, the leader of the world or who has the most influence. And most people say, well, you know, Pope, uh, uh, Pope Francisco or the Queen. Uh, the reality has been it's been Vladimir Putin for the last four or five years. Yeah, I mean, he's he's been highly... Pretty highly influential these days, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, well, then we're going to switch to our last Swamp Tea item, which is Ivanka Trump has apparently called D.C. residents vicious. She says there's a... She was blindsided by the viciousness. Yeah. Um, I think... You know, Georgetown neighbor, I think you have something to say about the viciousness. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> Georgetown women, or D.C. women in general... Okay, so... I shouldn't say that because now I count one of them. So I'll, I'll, I'll be for a little bit forgiving. Um, I moved When I moved here seven years ago to, to, to Georgetown, I was a very confident woman. I could go anywhere in the world, make friends so easily. It came so like naturally. Come to D.C. and it crushed me. They destroyed me. They ground me into dust. But that's good because I rebuilt myself back again. <laughs> I rose up in the Phoenix. It is, it is. I have to sympathize with Ivanka on this one. They are the very, they can. This is definitely not for sissies. It is not well, for the you know, friend of When I came here, uh, someone, I don't recall who, he said, look, one thing you have to know about Washington, if you want a friend, buy a dog. <laughs> That's why we have Chico. Well, I was going to say, even though Ivanka was in like the business world before, and I'm sure it's very vicious, politics is a different level because I think people take it so personally. Like politics affects people's lives. So I think people saw like, you know, Ivanka brand before she was close to the president. It's like, eh, if you don't like Ivanka, you don't like Ivanka. But now they're like, well, you're supporting policies that actually affect people's lives. And that's, I think, partially right. where some and, and given some the viciousness of the rhetoric of uh, Donald Trump's campaign. It does seem a bit ironic. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> You're totally blind. That's that's true. Though it is a vicious place. We it, it we yeah. can all attest to that. We can all attest to that. Well, I would also say, yeah, somebody said, you know, from the guy who started the birther rumor, he's exactly. talking about viciousness. Um, this is the guy. So Mexicans rapists yeah. and yes. drug dealers. So it did seem a little iffy coming from from Ivanka but anyway all right well I think that was some good swamp tea um we're gonna get right into talking to Carlos now um so first of all like I mentioned we're gonna be talking about Cuba and the Cuban policy today um and Carlos is Cuban he was born in Cuba can you just talk to us a little bit more about your background and how you sure. ended up in the swamp <clears throat> coming from Cuba <laughs> I was born in Havana, Cuba, uh, and I, uh, the revolution started <clears throat> in January 1, 1959. And so we left in June of 2000, I'm oh, no, sorry, June of uh, 1960, about a year and a half after. Uh, we went to uh, uh, Miami, then from there we went to New York City, uh, about two and a half years and two and a half years. So we became U.S. citizens in New, in New York City. 
after that, we moved to Mexico City because my father happened to get a job in Mexico City. So I started my career with the Kellogg Company in Mexico. And that's why if you go back and forth and look at, you know, how we, uh, where we ultimately ended up, that's why Karina was born in Mexico. So I read that you started at, so you, as you said, you started at Kellogg in Mexico um, selling Frosted Flakes off the back of a truck. So that's pretty amazing. Can you talk about that? True story. Yeah, true story. Can I have you a talk picture about of it in my office. <laughs> so the idea was that it was a training program, and if you, you know, went through the training program, you could get a job in sales. And uh, so what I did was sell to, to small mom stores. And I carried uh, merchandise in my own van as a Volkswagen van. The big rooster on the side, <laughs> cornflakes, and uh, you know sometimes I'd sell two boxes, not not a, not two cases, but two boxes. Mm. These were little very small stores, but it was fun and it was interesting. It was engaging, and I was working, and uh, you know I at least I was in there. I was I was part of a company. That's all I wanted to do. I also read um, that you still favor Frosted Flakes for breakfast. Is this true? <laughs> well, I've actually, uh, I actually, you know, I, I love all cereal. I yeah. think cereal is a wonderful food, and it really is. If you, you know, think about the, the content and and what it gives you. I like all cereals, but I, I like you know like the raisin bran and things like that. There's, I'm I'm part of a different target group now. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. So from Frosted Flakes in Mexico to co Secretary of Commerce in the swamp, like how did how did that? So you were how did you go from the back of a truck to to, <laughs> to, to that? I mean, you don't have to get into like you know big details, <clears throat> it's but a maybe long some story, of the highlights. But I'll, I'll basically give you the the highlight reel back and forth uh, in Mexico. At one point, after having been there for uh, probably five or six years, someone from the U.S. came down and said, "Hey, would you like to come up and work in the U.S." Uh, I spoke English. He liked the way I presented. He thought I had a future. Uh, so he, we went to the U.S. Uh, Carlos had been born one year before. Uh, Carlos Jr. Carlos Jr., yes. <laughs> My, uh, so we spent two years in the U.S. Then I was transferred back to Mexico as general manager of Kellogg, Mexico. So all of a sudden I was a top guy in uh, the Kellogg subsidiary. And I did that for five years, and it was a great experience. It's the first business I ever ran in my life, um, and it was just a wonderful experience. Uh, and that's when you were born. Be uh, Karina was born because uh, your, your older sister was born in Battle Creek before we went back to Mexico. Mm -hmm. After five years in Mexico, I, would, I went to Canada. Uh, we were there for about a year and a half. Uh, after Canada, back to the U.S., and then from the U.S. to Sydney, Australia. Oh, right. You guys were in Sydney as well. How was that growing up, like, in that manner, Karina? <laughs> Bouncing around yeah, a I lot. I thought you were interviewing me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it was cool. We liked moving around. Um, Kellogg's always made sure we, you know, had a good experience, so... We moved quite a bit. I think we moved about 20 times. That's not crazy. not to 20 different cities, but 20 Homes, times, sometimes within yeah. the same city. Uh, but it was quite an experience, and you learn to get used to a place, and then you're off, and, and every job is different. But that's what the career is about. You have to keep moving. You know, if you want to stay in one place, you're not going to go. You're not going to go very far. Some life lessons right there. Yeah. <laughs> So then coming to that, that transition, I think that's kind of the, f not final, but 
the, the latest transition um, into the swamp. What was that like, coming to D.C. and working in the government after being in the private sector um, yeah, for so long? I actually loved it, and it's the greatest experience of my life, and I was so surprised. Hmm. Uh, but when somebody called me, it was one of those things where I couldn't say no. And so, you know, my mind said, forget about it, don't do it. But my gut said, you, you have to do it. Uh, so when I came, and this was in a post 9-11 period, and, you know, government service was important. So I, uh, the first day I was here, I realized it was going to be the greatest job of my life. Wow. Uh, I used to check the stock price at Kellogg about 25 times a day just for the fun of it. You know, you press enter and it updates it. <laughs> I know about that. Uh, <laughs> one year, what, one day into the job, I couldn't tell you and I couldn't care less what the stock price mm. was. It just absorbs you. Interesting. Uh, it is the greatest thing I've ever done. And uh, I would I would recommend public service to anyone. Wow. So what would you say was like a highlight of that amazing experience? What would what kind of sticks out? Well, you know, there were a, a number of highlights. Some some were great and they were, you know, small victories and some were disappointments. Uh, we had a great victory when we uh, passed the Central America Free Trade Agreement by one vote, by the way. Uh, and that had been just a lot of work, a lot of, uh, as they say, pounding the pavement, the mm -hmm. pavement in Congress and and making your case. Uh, we had a very bitter experience with immigration. We almost got it through, but it just fell apart at the end. Um, we had uh, great free trade agreements, uh, Colombia, Peru, Korea, Panama, which were passed by Congress later, but they were negotiated during uh, the Bush administration. So there was a lot to do. We were there during Katrina, which was just an incredible you know, high pressure experience. Mm. And we should talk about that because I'd like to explain something about President yeah. Bush. Yeah, I didn't even um, think about, but definitely we should definitely yeah. get into uh, Karina. And I guess it's a good time to also say we have Katrina. Sorry, sorry, Katrina. Yeah. I was looking at Karina. This is Hurricane Karina. Yeah, sorry, I was looking at her. Katrina. Exactly. I was looking at Hurricane Carino when I said that. Um, just to say that we do have two audience. Um, well, we have, of course, our Georgetown neighbor, but we also have in the audience um, two special guests. And we'll, we'll talk about those issues. And I think, you know, the free trade agreement that you touched on is also really fascinating. Um, so we have Pablo Manriquez is here with us um, and Bradley Jenkins is here with us. And they're two experts on immigration. So we're going to talk about those issues of free trade agreements and immigration once we kind of get through our Cuba yeah. questions. Yeah. But um, but yeah, let's transition to um, to chatting about Cuba then. Um, first of all, can you tell us about um, you've you've been pretty like vocal. I've seen in articles that I've read and things that I've watched. You were pretty vocal about Cuban policy. Um, I guess obviously given your background, um, can you talk about it up until 2014 and kind of what your stance was, and then talk about what happened when Obama sort of came in and shook things up a little. Yeah, I, I learned Cuba policy at the dinner table, you know, mm. from my father, who was a Cuban refugee. He was 40 years old. You know, that was that was his life right there. So uh, I grew up in a very hardline household, mm. and uh, and I I took the talking points, and I did, and and for a given period of time, I think those hardline points were the right thing to do. We just have to understand that this is 60 years later, you know. <laughs> Um, so, uh, a few things helped me out. One is I, I never lived in Miami where it's very difficult to change your position in Miami. Mm. 
the second thing is that Cuba began to open up and they began to open up their economy and allow entrepreneurs. And it seemed to me that if they're doing that, that we should be helping them. Why do you think, sorry, why do you think uh, it's difficult in Miami to... Well, I think the, pre- the social pressure in Miami is very, very tough. There are some people, and I, you know, I tip my hat, who have come out in favor of engagement with Cuba, who have been criticized terribly in Miami, and, and uh, uh, very, they're very courageous because the easy position in Miami is to be a hardliner. Mm. Uh, and I look, I, I know what that is because I, I, and I understand it and I'm not criticizing anyone and, and I empathize and I, and they were a certain age and they lost everything they owned. And so for them, it's extremely personal. I'm a little bit more removed mm. in the sense that I was six years old when we left. Mm. Uh, but yeah, in Miami, it's not, uh, it's not an easy thing to do. So do you think it was less difficult for you? I read some, some it's called the Balbula blog. I think it was like a Cuban community blog, Balbula blog. blog, and they called you the Republican Judas in an article. Yeah. So was it? You were saying like it wasn't as tough for you, but it did. It seems like you faced some kind sure. of. Oh, um, I, I, absolutely, uh, you face pressure, but you face pressure for whatever you do. And if you're not going, if you're not willing to face pressure, then you're not going to do anything. So mm-hmm. it's part of, you know, it's part of pushing things and part of doing stuff and. Uh, but yes, a lot of people criticize. I lost a lot of friends, which just goes to show you how emotional of an issue this is. These are people who I had known for many, many years, and we were like brothers. Mm. And from that moment on, I was gone. So uh, the, the other thing I would say that helped me is <clears throat> when we lived in, in Sydney, I was in charge of Asia. So I've traveled a lot to Asia throughout the years. And it's interesting what happened there that where <clears throat> Chinese who left when Mao took over, as soon as the economy started to open, they went back, yeah. even though the Communist Party was still in place. Why? Because it's the land of their ancestors, mm. because perhaps it was the land of their birth, mm. because that's where their heart is, right? Uh, heart is where, uh, where the home is. Uh, or home is where the heart is. So they they went back, and I, I always thought, why can't we do that? Mm. Why can't Cubans do that? And part of yeah. it is just very strong emotions. And so yesterday, I mean, you were saying um, the pot, like you you mentioned the popular thing, the easy thing to do in Miami is just go in and um, take the hard line position, which is kind of what we saw yesterday. You know, people talk about. The president kind of um, went to Miami last minute during the campaign. He read off, you know, the typical script. Uh, he got, you know, some Cuban American support, and now he is paying them back. And you saw him yesterday. He, you know, they even sang "Happy Birthday" to him. You know, it was a real like love show between the two. You know. Somebody said political theater, and he yeah. was throwing them the red meat that they wanted. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, and and there's a there's, there's a story here. And look, I I respect those people. I may <clears throat> disagree with them, but uh, but I respect them. And I by by no, uh, you know, I, I don't want to insinuate that I that that I I think they're wasting their time or they're wrong or there's something wrong with them. I empathize with them, <clears throat> but I think the special guest wants to say something. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, the mystery guest. Mystery, thank you. I'm also special, but it's okay. Thank you. 
<clears throat> well, my my question is, it really doesn't have like a lot to do with Trump right now, but. Um, I, I, my curiosity is, I, I went to Cuba for my birthday last year. It was one of the best trips I've ever had in my life. I've loved the country. I love the people. Um, such a happy culture, such a open culture. Um, my question is, those friends that you said that have cut you off because of your position on Cuba, have they gone back and seen what the sanctions, U.S. sanctions, have done to the country? Uh, no, they have not. <clears throat> Most of them have not. Have not. Okay. And... Um, you know, part of it goes back to what is the purpose of the sanctions? Mm -hmm. And if you go back to the Torricelli bill, which is, I mean, we're getting in the weeds here, but that was the, the, the first bill that really started to define what we know today as the embargo. Mm -hmm. At the top, it says the, the purpose of this is to wreak havoc on the Cuban economy. So uh, the, and then that was codified into law. So today, the president cannot get rid of the embargo without taking it to Congress, which that was a brilliant move by the, you know, the, the hardliners, as we would call them in Congress. Uh, and that's what makes it so, so complicated. But uh, it, it is a very complex uh, subject, and it will continue to be. There are no simplistic answers. And I think we have to be thoughtful about it and uh, as much as we can to avoid emotion. I want to talk about emotion a little, though, because just like going back to what you were saying about the homeland and Chinese people going back to communist China, even though they left after Mao, you said when you went back to Havana in June 2015, I felt joy, I felt happy, just this relief that I was in Cuba, just this sense of total, total bliss and happiness. The first thing I thought about is, have I wasted time? Did I waste all that time because it was so politically incorrect, because it was so risky, because it wasn't accepted? Did I waste time and not come to Havana sooner? So that's really like powerful kind of um, emotion right there, yeah. honestly. Yeah. Um, no, so. Um, can you just, yeah, talk about sure. that statement no, a little? In, in a way, I, I'm beginning to think that I went at the right time. It's mm -hmm. almost like I went when I should have, and I did it the right way. And so um, before that, I, it would have created a bad precedent. Mm. But I have been reading about Cuba. It's been my hot Karina would know this. Uh, I've been reading about Cuba since I can read. So if you, well, I'll take you to my office in a second, and the whole wall is full of Cuba books. There isn't a day that has gone by that I haven't thought about Cuba. What happened? How did it happen? Why did it happen? Uh, what ha you know, what's going on? It's, it's been an obsession. And then all of a sudden to be able to be there was something that, uh, frankly, I hadn't expected. It was like, you know, something way in the future. So I stayed at the uh, big hotel, the Hotel Nacional, where Godfather 2 was, uh, was filmed. And uh, I woke up, we got there at night, so I woke up in the morning, I opened up the blinds, I looked out into the city, uh, which is still you know, majestic, but boy, it's run down. And I felt joy, I felt so lucky. I didn't know if I would be scared, if I would be paranoid, if I would be uh, worried about a knock on the door at three o'clock in the morning, mm. uh, you know, but I woke up and I felt joy to be back in the place of my birth. So, you know, it, it's very difficult. And, and, uh, 
to to deal with things like this and i and i'll tell you the way i've thought about it in cuba um one is i don't want to spend the rest of my years hating uh because there's a tremendous amount of hatred especially toward one man because mm -hmm. the, the cuban revolution was one man um and at, at some point if you can put your shoes or put yourself in the shoes of someone else a 50-year-old Cuban technocrat who's part of the system, who believes in the system, who's very much, you know, defending uh, Marxism, Leninism in Cuba. Well, I don't know. If I would have been born there in 1971, you know, uh, over 10 years after the revolution, what would I be today? Hmm. So it, once you do that, you start looking at, you start understanding people. Uh, but I have... You know, I've, I've made some good friends in Cuba because you put that aside and 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 you start understanding each other, and uh, it's uh, it's a real shame that we are so divided. It is, emotions are really really high um, when it comes to this issue. And yesterday, you know, if anybody for the people that watched the coverage, um, it almost seemed like the Cuban Americans were celebrating like they had you know they had won a war. You know, they had to they had won this issue. Um, but you mentioned, you know, it is a really complicated issue. And some people are yeah. saying the policy <clears throat> was really just tweaked. It wasn't even. I, I, I think I think it's an excellent point, because if you think about the the big sweep of Cuba, U.S. relations and the history and the fact that they're 90 miles away and, and they've been so intertwined for so many years, uh, you know, what happened yesterday was tweaking on the edges it wasn't a big deal what what it will do is make traveling to cuba more difficult that's mm -hmm. all I'm glad uh, I that last year <laughs> but you know the cruise ships can still go yeah. airlines can still travel there now when you go there you can't stay at a government-run hotel so you have to probably stay at an airbnb mm -hmm. not bad you uh you you can't um you can't spend money at an establishment that's run by the military. The military controls 60% of the economy, so it makes it tricky, it makes it uncomfortable, it makes it inconvenient, but you can still go to Cuba. Yeah, well, I was going to ask about that. How, like, given that, you know, JetBlue's flying there now, Carnival Cruises is going there, how, like, practically feasible? Because, you know, I was watching the speech yesterday, and he didn't really say much, to be honest, about what was actually going to be changed, but... What are the feasible changes he can even make at this point in the sense of things, the ball seems to already be kind of rolling in terms of engagement? Well, you know, there, there, there were some people, and, and during the campaign, you have to go back a little bit in the campaign. In the primaries, he was asked about Cuba, and he said, folks, 50 years has been enough. You know, it's time for change. So he was, he was being pragmatic about the whole thing. And I think there his instincts were right. Mm. Then during the national campaign, he went to Miami. Uh, the donors were there. Uh, in Miami, the donors it, were front were right behind. You know, I, well, I, I just, oh, today at the speech yesterday, I saw them. His highest yeah. donors. So they made a big right difference there. on him, and, and he went yeah. from one extreme to the other. Mm -hmm. And and in Miami, what he said is, I am going to reverse everything that the president has done, President Obama, if they don't accede to our demands, which is the wrong way to start. So we still have embassies. That's one thing that was done under President Obama's normalization. We opened embassies, our embassies again, after having been shut for 55 years in Havana and Washington. 
Uh, they allow our roaming services there, AT&T, Verizon, uh, T-Mobile. Uh, there are Wi-Fi hotspots where people can use their phones, uh, airlines, cruise ships. So there's some business going on. But they're also doing a lot of business with, uh, with China. So, so, sorry. So essentially, I mean, um, the, the, the policy changes aren't so extreme. I mean, it's almost like the what you know the celebration of the hardliners was sort of a political. The you know yeah, like I, I think the political. the celebration was because the rhetoric was so um, a, a pro Cuba uh, Cuban American hardliner, so uh, anti Cuba. That made a big difference, and that made it a very emotional event. But when you look at the substance of what was done. Um, you know, it's not like there's this grand, new, bold Cuba policy. We 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 made it a little bit tougher to travel. So what are the, so what do you th so what are what's everybody celebrating then down in Miami? Well, I think what they celebrated was that the president went down and said the right things, mm. and something that President Obama did not do. You know, he went down and said the uh, bad. You know, Castro is. Uh, uh, un until they improve their human rights, until they have elections. And I, I didn't actually hear the speech, but I'm sure that he said exactly what people wanted to hear. But the substance of what he actually did is not that grand. So you said uh, yesterday on Bloomberg, you mentioned that this is really, it's not even, it's more of a domestic issue than it is an international issue. I mean, and it, as you were just saying, it's not like anybody, you know, the hardliners didn't win a policy fight here. Well, the reason, the, the reason it is a domestic issue is because of the Cuban-American community in Miami. They're very powerful, and they've earned that power, and they've worked very hard. Uh, and and those are the people who really push for the embargo to continue. And because it's been codified, uh, you know, they've been able to gain alliances in the Senate and the Congress for uh, people to vote against lifting the embargo. Uh, people in the administration, I'm sure there are many who would like to do it, but they can't. They have to go through Congress. And, and people are kind of accusing Senator Rubio and Congressman... Mario Diaz-Balar of kind of making a power play and using this as uh, some sort of bargaining chip? What, what, what's the, there was an article not uh, not long ago about uh, Mario Diaz-Balart uh, changing his health care vote if, uh, if the president would do something on Cuba to reverse uh, President Obama's policies. That, that was public information. Uh, and there is a sense that that President Trump won Florida because of the Cuban Americans. And it's actually very interesting that, uh, you know, his administration is sure of that. But the numbers suggest that President Trump won Florida because of the panhandle, because of the north of the state, and in areas of uh, Cuban American concentration, high concentration, uh, President Trump did not win. Mm -hmm. So, there's some confusion there. I was just gonna say one, I guess just quickly though, to end this conversation. Um, it seems like, okay, so you still have a very strong sort of right-wing Cuban community, but it seems just talking like from what you said about how voting panned out, that maybe there's some generational split going on in terms of what's happening. And then also there seems to be a strong business um, presence now that's pushing for the Obama policy. So it seems like there is 
dynamic changes going on that even yeah. if you still have this kind of right wing strong lobby, it seems like they're facing pressure from within, from the youth and also from different sort of like interests from outside their community. So how do yeah. you see that kind of playing yeah, there, out? There several things that are going on. One is uh, generational. The other one is that people can now travel and just the fact of being able to go back to this land where, you know, they've been hearing about it all their lives uh, has has helped um, has helped change the 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 landscape of voting uh, in Miami. So, yes, there's a generational shift and uh, there's business as well who would like to do. There are people who would like to do business in in Cuba. And, and they're also uh, a big part of that shift. The other thing that's influencing is people who have come recently, you know, they know what it's like to live under the embargo. So, and they have family back in Cuba. They would like to see their family be better off. So they're also in favor. So sure, the numbers are slowly uh, moving against the hardliners and it's a matter of time, right. you know. Well, I think that's a really good place to end the Cuba. Pablo, did you want to say something about Cuba? Oh, okay, yeah. Specifically about Airbnb, um, okay. there's an argument that says that the reason why we need to un we need to change this travel policy specifically with Cuba is because it's benefiting the military. When you get there, you stay in a hotel, you you know you get driven around or whatever, and the military benefits. How does Airbnb fit into that spectrum? And moving forward, what is does the policy change? How you can Airbnb? How you've been able to Airbnb since last year? Yeah, my my understanding is Airbnb actually benefits entrepreneurs, so it doesn't go through the military. It it, it benefits the you know the owner of that home. Uh, there are also people who do it on their own, and uh, and you can stay stay at someone's house. And I understand, and in many cases, it's very comfortable. Uh, but a lot of people have been used to going to a hotel, and, and you know that makes it different. And then you can't spend money in a military establishment or an establishment run by the military, so you have to be careful about where you eat. Now, the, the interesting thing there is that the best restaurants in Havana are privately owned by entrepreneurs. So what we're doing, in essence, is making it more difficult for entrepreneurs to succeed, so, which so is what we all want. So is there any merit to the argument that the Trump administration is making then that through this policy change, the military or the regime would somehow be diminished or weakened? Well, I, I think that uh, what the president did yesterday was tactical. I don't think that a Trump-Cuba doctrine has surfaced, uh, and I think it will over time. And, you know, I think that will be a lot different than just what's happening now. There's something we should remember about Cuba uh, President Trump is very concerned about national security. Uh, and if your purpose is to wreak havoc on an economy and to make a country collapse, um, you know, how does it you know, think about 500,000 Cubans, a million Cubans on the Florida Straits? Um, think about a bloody civil war in Cuba. Uh, what does that do to the U.S.? Uh, so, so from a national security standpoint, uh, what we're doing doesn't make much sense. And, uh, and, it, and it's uh, right, and because we're so vulnerable to, to shocks. So yes, ch they're changing, and I believe that it is to our benefit to enable that change and to make that change gradual 
as opposed to a sudden collapse, which would not be uh, beneficial to our national security. And that's why I believe a lot of members, very respected members of the military, uh, are in favor of continued normalization. Yeah, I, I read that. Like the the rhetoric coming from Cuba has actually been very moderate and toned down, and like they really want to play ball and they want to continue with this kind of engagement. So, but it seems like from what you're saying that this is a lot of political theater from Trump because the, it was sort of minimal. He threw the community their red meat speech yesterday, but and then see, they they gave him the love fest. I'm sure that he wanted. Yeah, you know, they sang him happy birthday. They were yeah. cheering for him. They, you know, but it did seem a little bit like theater because it. it could have been a lot worse you know yeah. he, he could have, i mean imagine if he closed the embassy that would be like saying you know we're going back to the 1960s well, because the truth is i mean we have to acknowledge um in the red states there were a lot of farmers that voted for trump that would love to trade with cuba <clears throat> yes and and they do the only the only problem is that uh since uh 2001 uh, president bush made it uh, law to get paid in cash. So you can sell agricultural products to Cuba. You can sell medicine to Cuba as long as they pay cash in advance. Mm -hmm. So what proponents of normalization have asked for is l let us give them credit like anybody else does. Oh, okay. But, but you're right. That's an important factor is that those people voted for President Trump and they want more trade with Cuba. So he's Would got you say a lot that of Cuba's different ready for credit in that level. Well, that's a good question. There's a lot, you know, Cuba's been pretty much outside of the um, international financial institution community, uh, whether it be the you know, World Bank, IMF, uh, the IDB. So it's going to take time, but. It's, you know, it's early days, but eventually, yes, absolutely. Last question. Sorry, Wes. Uh, That's okay. Just a As Republicans, do you think that what Donald Trump did yesterday helps or hurts solidify that base that he might not have won in 2016 moving forward toward the 18 primary or to the 18 uh, midterm and 2020? Well, I think it helps him definitely in um, to to motivate uh, voters in Miami. Uh, you know, m many times it's not about the number of people, it's how enthusiastic they are, which is what happened to him nationally. You know, that 40% that is hardcore President Trump, those people were out there voting and they were getting people out to vote and they were fundraising and then and some people voted who had never voted before. That's what makes the hardliners so powerful as they get out to vote they uh, they do fundraisers. They're engaged. People who are moderates go on with their life. So so you also you know the 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 machinery that is that hardline community is is very powerful. This might be a good time to segue into uh, immigration. Yeah, speaking of the wall, speaking of the wall and and Mexico and pro hard promises to keep. Well, first of all, there already is a wall. So can, yeah, can you guys um, let's talk about immigration a little and what's actually been changed under Trump? Because I know there was a lot of fear around um, from cer from certain communities with Trump's rhetoric. You know, building and the wall. And yesterday, we actually we saw sort of an olive branch extended. Oh right, with the Dreamers. So yeah, we want to talk about what's happening with the Dreamers as well. 
Um, yeah, so Bradley Jenkins is here with us. He's an immigration lawyer based in the swamp. Um, <laughs> so his credentials are Harvard, so I think we can Top of his class at Harvard. trust him, maybe. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah. <laughs> I think Bradley has um, a few questions for Secretary. Do you want to do that? Because, again, I didn't know this was... Sure. Yeah, okay. So it has been a week of some movement in immigration policy this week. Uh, and I think what's important to note is that there were multiple statements coming both from the White House, um, and but more importantly from the top, uh, from the Secretary of Homeland Security's office, but also from the Director of ICE. And it gives us a sense of, of, how, they're of how this administration may be trying to play it both ways, right? So... Um, the secretary's statement said, first of all, was the administration was trying to emphasize that it was rolling back an Obama policy. They weren't really saying, they were trying to frame it as not we're keeping DACA, the only policy which has been implemented. DACA is deferred action for childhood arrivals, a, a policy which defers deportations for um, people who entered the United States as children. There was a more expansive policy that was never implemented because it was enjoined by the courts and the Obama, I mean, the Trump administration and Secretary Kelly officially rolled it back. And, and they, the framing was interesting. They, they were framing it as we are rescinding an Obama policy but keeping DACA. Uh, and of course, the only policy, the only noteworthy policy piece of that announcement is we're keeping DACA. Um, and then at the same time, the same week, this week in Congress, the uh, Director of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, the part of Homeland Security that enforces immigration law, um, said some really, from our community's uh, standpoint, startling things to a congressional committee, um, saying that entire communities should be looking over their shoulders in fear, um, and that no population is safe. Um, and this was the testimony of the ICE director to, um, to the Congress, and that, that, uh, and that was uh, extremely concerning for, for us in the immigration advocacy community. So uh, that's, that's perhaps a bit of, a, of the, this week's context Sum of up. happenings yeah. in, in immigration. So did you have any, did you have questions or did you? And then also Friday though we also heard um, that they aren't going to deport uh, dreamers. Right. So the deferred action policy was not rescinded. So what do you think is actually happening then? Like what what is really happening then? If you have these conflicting, okay, so the dreamers can stay, but then you have this really stark um, language coming out of the IC director, and and who actually has final say when it comes to these things? Like what's it would seem you know, the president should be sort of having that policy, those policy decisions, but it, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, well, what do you think, what's actually happening? So what I think we're seeing on the ground is that the 700,000 uh, young adults or so who have applied for and obtained DACA um, will remain, will continue to have DACA absent. 700,000? Yeah. Uh, uh, absent uh, any uh, any developments and adverse developments in their case, uh, and that this administration will continue permitting them to renew their work permits, etc. But for the 11 million people who are in the United States without immigration status, 
um, we are seeing this administration ramp up enforcement activity, um, and uh, and they're asking for the appropriations to be able to do that to increase detention space to uh, to to take a lot of to up the action in terms of. Uh, immigration enforcement in the interior of the United States. And I have to say, the way they're doing it, it's pretty very sensational. I think they're doing it on purpose to scare people. That is picking up undocumented, um, you know, Latinos, or as they're dropping off their kids at school, or as they're celebrating a birthday, or at graduation. Two hours before high school prom, that actually happened last week. I mean, it's disgraceful. As a country, we should be ashamed of ourselves that we're conducting things that way, really. People's lives are just on, at, at stake here, and we're just complete disregard for that. And these are people, these are not criminals, like he said he was going to pick up. These, these are people who are just simply undocumented here and they are going they're trying to go through processes they've picked up people going to check in with the, with their lawyers i think or who was it with ice or to check in their yeah with ice to kind of they've been doing it and they're like basically taking them away from their families to talk just like sort of more generally about how we got here. Yeah, I was, I was just thinking yeah. that myself. Yeah. Like, can you talk about, because yeah. you've been vocal about immigration yeah. and, and how that's one of the key issues that you are interested in. So can you actually talk about what you, yeah, like how we got here, but also your sort of take on immigration policy and reform and where we should, where we should be at versus where we're at? Yeah, good question. You know, first of all, this is not the first time that we have had uh, second thoughts about immigration or we have had uh, a detour on immigration policy. We did it in the 1920s. We had something called the Chinese Exclusion Act where we kept uh, Chinese out of the country. Uh, you know, you remember everybody talks about the example of Irish need not apply. So we have had a love-hate relationship with immigration. The irony is that we are what we are because of immigration, you know, and it's just it's one of those those crazy uh, conflicks. I will say, just to butt in, I had a one of my teachers during grad school made a comment once that it's like every wave of immigrants thinks that okay, that that was it. Yeah, they want like to shut the door. Me, yeah. yeah, like we are the real Americans. After us, so the people that came it, are, like, the, the real yeah, the, the Hispanic immigration is actually a fairly recent phenomenon, uh, even though Mexico is next door in Central America. And so there used to be a program called, and I'm, I'm talking about low-skilled workers now, farm workers. There used to be a program called Braceros, which was not good. Right? It provided legal labor, but the conditions were awful. Uh, you know, there was almost a sense that it was like indentured servitude. And so the Congress uh, or the administration, I'm not sure exactly how it worked, they took it out. They said, this is bad, bad policy, take it out. That's good. But they never replaced it. So then all of a sudden, the only way that you can get workers is illegally. Because the Congress hasn't given you a legal way of doing it. So whose fault is it? It is the Congress and the president's fault, whoever president is in power, that we have a problem with undocumented immigration. Um, for me, immigration is an economic issue. 
of course, it's a moral issue, and you can make a moral argument. I find that uh, the moral argument is too easy to dismiss by saying, hey, the law is the law. Mm-hmm. But talk about the economy. And uh, I'll give you two examples. Because our law is non-existent, it doesn't work, uh, if you want to bring somebody in to work on a farm legally, it takes about four or five months. By that time, your crop has rotted. It just doesn't work. So we need about 700,000 to 1 million farm workers per year. If you shut the border and really do a fantastic job with a wall and, you know, whatever it is you want to do, but really do a great job in sealing the border and you don't have a legal system for them to come in, we're going to have a farming crisis. And what's happened is people go out of business or they move their business to Mexico. And many farms are moving to Mexico. So how, where did this, okay, so we have like this illegal market for labor now. How, where, so it obviously didn't start when Trump just came to office. Like this has been going on. Where can we trace this kind of issue and, and why has it been like this? Like why have we had this? It seems like it's, it's not even a partisan thing. It seems like Democrats, yeah. Republicans, it's been kind of this similar sort of problematic or dysfunctional um, policy. And what is yeah. it kind it, of? It starts out with a simple insight that the reason we have an immigration problem, the reason we have so many undocumented workers is because our laws don't work for our economy. Our laws don't work. That's why we have this problem. Not because of anything else you could, you know, because people come to get welfare payments or no. It's because our laws don't work, so uh, we need to find labor uh, undocumented. Here's a little fact, okay? I don't want to get into economics and the technicalities of this thing, but, but, but this is the simplistic way of thinking about immigration. The economy grows two ways, very simple. You have more people who are working and the productivity of those people. Our working age population isn't growing as fast as it needs to grow. So if you stopped immigration today, we wouldn't have enough workers. And if we don't have enough workers, we can't grow. So it's, a, it's an economic issue. Same thing happens on the H-1B, which is the high skilled. Um, there's a quota of 65,000. That quota is taken up in the month of January. So that's why Microsoft has built uh, I understand, an R&D center in Vancouver. Interesting. So it is just... Super dysfunctional. It's, like just, it's a matter of recognizing, number one, we need immigrants. And without immigrants, we can't grow. And I think we've done a great job in assimilating immigrants. Uh, this is a room full of immigrants. And we are, as you know, as American as can be, right? So that's not a problem. Right. But we have to recognize we need them to grow our economy and two... We have to change our laws so we can do it legally. Do you, do you guys see any hope for this administration? I mean, obviously, probably some of these conflicting messages are happening because there's a, a, a realization that we need this. But then they're, they, again, to appeal to the political base, maybe they're rallying up some tough rhetoric. I mean, do you see any solution to finding these legal means that you're talking about? Well, yeah, the- sure. I mean, what, what, uh, 
originally what he said was, we want to get rid of criminals and felons. Who, you know, who can disagree with that? Uh, so <laughs> the idea is get rid of the criminals, the gangs, the felons. Um, but, you know, don't go after the gardener or don't go after the person who's working 12 hours a day in a kitchen. Uh, and there have been examples of both of those things taking place. There was one uh, pretty well-known example of a DACA uh, getting... Uh, deported. So uh, we, we have to set priorities right. This is a little bit of what uh, Mitt Romney called self-deportation, which was make it so miserable for people that they leave. Mm -hmm. I also just want to point out one thing, is that um, we need to also acknowledge um, the part of uh, like private interests in this whole issue. And this is here's another economic um, aspect of it is that the private prison industry, um, they're now building prisons and detention centers on unprecedented rates. And that's money. That's big money. And if you have, you know, Trump rounding, like, okay, so ICE rounding up all these immigrants, whether they're criminals or not, just like we were saying, and just putting them in these, you know, detention centers, that's, I, I believe that these private um, companies charge the government, like, Something like I, I'm, I'm not sure of the number, so I'm not going to say it. But they have to, the government has to fill a bed um, every each day, otherwise they get charged for it, and that's how so part of the way that works. So I think that should be acknowledged because that is a driving factor. Yeah, as I well. mean you're you're talking now about prison reform, which is uh, you know kind of and judicial reform. <laughs> yeah, that's is, part of it. But they're also building like detention centers like crazy just right, for immigrants. Right, right. For, yeah. for, yeah. Um, yes. 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 And, and that's, I mean, that's a big topic, uh, judiciary reform, prison reform, and, uh, you know, what happens to uh, a 20-year-old who makes a silly mistake, it's not violent, mm -hmm. and that 20-year-old gets five years in jail. He, in those five years, he develops a PhD in crime. <laughs> uh, all his friends are also felons. And then when he leaves, because he is a felon, he can't get a job. So what can he do? What he learned in prison. So there should be a better way. I don't know what it is. I am, you know, uh, I'm not a policy expert on prison reform, but there's there has to be a better way. So I was going to say that a solution that, and I don't know if we know for sure where it came from originally, might have come from the 06 bill, but uh, in terms of the solutions for making our immigration system great again, or if it's ever been great at all, uh, was the H2C visa, which I don't understand it as well as Bradley does. So, well, something that's never existed. Um, so, I mean, let's back up for just a second. What I the way the way I would want to frame a question, perhaps, is what most of what our immigration debate is these days is a debate between relative relatively progressive people, um, this may be oversimplifying, but, but relatively progressive people who want to focus on uh, 11 million amnesties, uh, the Democrats in Congress, and uh, re and relatively conservative people, who, or at least a faction of relatively conservative people who want to focus on border security. And, it's, and that's the way it's framed. It's a de debate between 
border security people and um, amnesty people. Um, and but what, one thing that everybody acknowledges is that the actual system, the day-to-day gears of government that continue to grind to try and allow people into the United States, is broken. And what's not part of the public conversation is what do we do to fix what's what's the actual reform part of immigration reform? Um, uh, and I, I, that's what I want to solicit a conversation about: is what are the what are the broad outlines of the actual reform yeah. for? prospective reform look like? I'll, I'll tell you about the 2006 reform. Cause I, for me, it's it's been probably the the gold standard, and and I believe in, eventually we're going to go back to something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea was pretty easy. You come forward, you're undocumented, you come forward, it's an honor system, and you say, I'm, I'm here undocumented. Uh, I haven't committed any crimes. I've been working uh, at a factory, and during a certain time period, they do a background check. Uh, and then, of course, there are penalties. You have to pay ta- back taxes. You, you know, there, there are penalties. And if you're accepted, you got what we called a Z card. A Z card doesn't mean that you're a citizen. It doesn't mean that you're a resident. It means that you're allowed to work. And then based on the amount of time uh, based on the amount of time that you stayed here uh, working, and it, I think it turned out to be somewhere between 14 and 18 years, you could become a citizen, right? But, but what you started out with was a, a, a Z card, and it was a biometric card. It couldn't, be, um, it couldn't be falsified. The private sector would also use something called E-Verify to be able to verify that these cards are right. So <clears throat> that was essentially a big part of the system. The other part of the system is today our immigration policy has always been based on family reunification, which I think is very noble, right? And and, and it's a great part of America. We give priorities to family members. The, The issue is that it's all of the priority goes to the family members with some exceptions. So you may be and I'm talking about in economic terms, you may not be bringing the people that your economy needs. So instead of having, I don't know, 70% family, we did something that was like 40% family and 30% skills because we need people with certain skills. This is what Canada does and what uh, New Zealand does. But that was the, the general outline. Now, as I talk about this and talk very simplistically about it, it was a 700-page bill. So the complexities of the detail, the legal detail, uh, are, are real. For example, if you cross the border without papers, that's a misdemeanor. But if you use someone else's Social Security card to get a job, that's a felony. So can we waive that? Because most of these folks, in order to work, they needed something. And uh, hardliners, conservatives would not didn't, didn't like that. But if you don't waive that, then every uh, just about every undocumented worker is a felon. So it, it gets complicated. It gets extremely complicated. But un- until we do something, it's going to continue to get worse. 
And ironically, as the president becomes more successful in deporting people, the more pressure our economy will be under. Do we see any pushback for this? And like, do we do we have anybody, you know, is there anyone leading the fight for this immigration reform to counter what's going on in the executive branch congressionally? <laughs> do, you, do you see um, small business owners? Um... Yeah, they do. Look, you have small business owners. You have the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, you have individual firms. Individual firms like to do it through an association because they don't want to be out there. They, it, it's a very sensitive issue, mm -hmm. especially today. So, you know, nobody wants to be out there. Um, even the Chamber of Commerce, traditionally a supporter of immigration reform, has been uh, quiet, but they continue to be supportive. The Business Roundtable. Um, so, yes, uh, businesses have be uh, agriculture, they're farmers, but... Um, they're they're very careful about it. I mean, the high tech community. You you hear Jeff Bezos. You I mean, all these guys are just saying our immigration system is crazy. But a lot of people have a problem with the idea of legalization versus a path to citizenship. All right, that's that's an excellent question. Okay, I, I, and, and for me, that is the question, uh, both from a substance standpoint, but also emotionally. So Democrats, for example, want a path to citizenship, which means you're here illegally or you're here in an undocumented fashion. I don't like to use illegal. You're here undocumented. Eventually, you get right with the law. You become a citizen. There's another uh, compromise, which is you become legal, which means you can work. You can leave the country. You can come back. But... You don't have the, to live in, t in fear. You don't have to live in fear. You can come out of the shower. You can work. Mm. Um, but as a punishment, you can never be a citizen. Your children can. And so that's another philosophy. And what I have said is do what you can get done. Because mm. here's the, you know, the, mm. the, the, the frustration is... Uh, people wanted citizenship. No, we will not sign a reform bill unless it has a path to citizenship, even though that path is 10, 15 years long. Mm. But because they didn't agree to that, they denied undocumented workers legal like, status. So it's almost like Germany with their guest worker, like the Turks in Germany have been there for like two or three generations legally, but they don't get citizenship. Um, yeah, and, and look, we do this as good as anyone. Yeah. I think the only country that does it better or as, as good as we do is Australia and Canada. Mm. Uh, but the uh, th there's no question. I mean, most countries, it's... It's like a separate population. Mm. They live in their own ghettos, their mm. own districts. They don't feel like they're part of society. Um, it, there, there's no, there's no culture of assimilation. Right. That's legal. But you're That's still saying just do what you, you yeah. You're saying just do what you can get done though. Either way, because it's better well, right. than. I mean, right. I mean, yeah. You, let's just say you're talking to an undocumented worker who works as um, a busboy in a restaurant. And you said, look, if we're not going to sign this uh, because we think it's more important than in 15 years you become a citizen, mm. uh, we think that's more important than that 
you become legal tomorrow. Right. I don't think he would agree with you. No, I mean, I, 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 we could yeah, also I agree. agree. If that the would 2006 be... bill had passed, we could be working from legalization now to citizenship. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's making, you know, uh, the, the old saying, it's making the perfect the enemy of the good. Uh, but, you know, in, in 2000, when President Bush took over, I've never yeah. heard that. Sorry, perfect is maybe yeah, perfect. Okay. The enemy of the good. That's really interesting. Yeah. Oh, I, I like, I like it. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's uh, swamp talk. That's yeah, <laughs> swamp talk. I had we should know about that. <laughs> but when when President Bush took office, uh, it was a very bold, visionary program to to reform immigration, where uh, Mexican workers came to the U.S. Uh, they were able to contribute to their Mexican Social Security from the U.S. You know, it was organized. It was it was like a bilateral economic uh, relationship, except it was a bilateral immigration deal. And then came 9/11, mm. and that absolutely just derailed oh, everything. Interesting. Um, in terms of so from the 2006 bill today like let's say that they actually wanted to continue the conversation at the white house the trump white house this next week um that they began with this dreamer uh announcement on friday what from the two like, what are some top line items from the 2006 bill that john kelly could deploy today john kelly being the uh, secretary of homeland security who told congress last week who told appropriations that he favors a more permanent legal status for the dreamers um, what at, like not not just for the dreamers, but at a high level, like what are some things that maybe align with Trump's supposed base? Maybe not. Although I have a lot of doubts about the Trumps Trump's base and their and their fervor for ripping families apart. I I found that they're a lot more compassionate than that. Um, nevertheless, um, what would those top line items be that John Kelly could just take that are ready made that have been sitting on the shelf? Well, it depends what the objective is. I, by the way, I, I totally agree with, with Secretary Kelly when he said, if Congress doesn't like what I'm doing, then they should change the law. Because that's exactly what we're saying. We need to change the law. So, you know, what, what could happen? What could the president do? He can roll back a lot of what President Obama has done. I, I think that deportations will continue. Uh, According to President Trump, these will be based on felons, based on criminals, based on uh, the bad people. I hope we're not, you know, going after, again, going after gardeners who are making a living and sending money home. And, I mean, you you see it in D.C., and I'm not saying there are undocumented workers, but, but you see immigrants working 18, 20 hours a day, you know, whether it's, you know, in a restaurant, driving an Uber, doing something else. And you know that their children are not going to do the same, right? You see it from Ethiopia. You see it from so many other countries. So um, I, I don't think that there's going to be reform. I think politically speaking, it would be almost impossible for the president to go from, you know, uh, what he said on his first day to immigration reform. Uh it, it's going to be a very heavy lift, very heavy lift. Now, I'll tell you something. Secretary, uh, uh, Vice President Pence was part of the group uh, that was interested in, in, in some kind of reform. But what you need to do it is, of course, you need Secretary Kelly. And you probably need someone from the business side. But you need leadership in the House and in the Senate, like we had with uh, McCain... 
was it McCain, Sh not McCain Schumer, was it? McCain Kennedy, of course, my gosh. Um, so we, we worked with McCain Kennedy, it was, and it was actually Kennedy Kyle. But uh, it was fascinating. Speaking of the swamp and the families and the people and what is Washington, D.C., uh, working with, uh, with Senator Ted Kennedy was one of my uh, highlights, even though politically we may be very different. But he would come in every day. He was prepared. He had the most informed people. He was, you know, he got into the detail, and he was a great negotiator to, to the point where at, at one time I lost a little bit of patience, and I said, Senator Kennedy, this isn't fair, and I don't know. And he said, uh, young man, you are in the Senate, not in the executive branch. And, <laughs> and after that, uh, we became wonderful friends. And... Uh, you said he came and he sh afterwards he, uh, he, shook he, he, he shook my hand. He said, hey, my friend, everything okay, right? I said, of course. And, and from that day on, it was just, you know, it was great. So President Obama, um, you know, and again, like, not to harp on it too much, but I'm thinking if I'm John Kelly today and I could say, like, so you need a two-prong two approach to continuing the immigration debate next week. You need a message that appeases the base. And the message should be something as simple as, well, look at what Obama was proposing with DAPA the program to expand DACA, and also the path to citizenship. So maybe the off-the-shelf solution that could at least be poll-tested will be the legalization. Um, and it sounds to me like that already exists. It's already been written. It's on the shelf. Yeah. Jeb Bush was a proponent That's of right. it. And, and in fact, Jeb, in his book, uh, was against path to citizenship because he thought it was more viable to get it through. As a political calculation. Yeah, but politics is the art of the possible, right? I remember, yeah. No, I, I certainly remember because I, I remember being appalled by the the idea of legalization versus path to citizenship. But, I mean, obviously that was not something that had really entered the lexicon at that point. Um, in my experience, right. and it was, I mean, we, it was a miscalculation yeah. on, the, on the part of the campaign uh, democratic platform um, to rally behind path to citizenship. But I, I do think it is a, uh, a mistake for Democrats, uh, and I've said this all along, to insist on a path to citizenship. Uh, you know, the cynics would say that uh, instead of undocumented workers, they're actually undocumented Democrats. <laughs> but, but if you forget about the path to citizenship and just make them legal and accept that as you know the art of be uh, the art of the possible uh chances are you know the democrats have have been more favorable f toward immigrants than than republicans have unless you go back to president reagan well, I mean, if we talk about a little bit about um, a program that I know that you're involved in where Democrats, Republicans, the private sectors come together to help uh, undocumented people um, and, the, you know, the Dream U.S., I, I believe is the name of it. Uh, can you tell us some of the stories, like sort of how you got involved and what are some of the stories that uh, of people who are accomplishing a lot despite their immigration status? Yeah, I, I began to meet Dreamers when I was in, in government. And uh, a good friend of, uh, of the iconic dreamer, uh, Gabi Pacheco, who I, I think is just wonderful. Um, so it, it, it's something that, that 
uh, we've taken an interest in. And Don Graham, who I give all the credit to and his leadership has been extraordinary, uh, asked me uh, to join as a co-founder uh, along with Henry Munoz, a well-known uh, Democratic uh, fundraiser, and, uh, to get involved in the founding of it. Uh, and, and for me, it was it was a pleasure, and and I'm on the board. But Don Don Graham is uh, has done uh, an incredible job. He has been a leader, and he has pushed, and he has uh, obtained some great resources. Uh, there's a, a very important technology company that gave us twenty five million dollars. But think about the numbers. You know, you can put. Uh, you know, a, a college education, say $25,000. How many students can you put through with $25 million? You do the math, not that many. And, you know, we talked before, there's 700,000 dreamers. The other thing I want to say about dreamers is just to flip it around because there's another dimension of dreamers that we don't talk about enough. And that is what they call the other dreamers. So dreamers who get deported and they go home, supposedly home, right, even though they may have come to the U.S. at three years of age. And they go to Mexico, say, they don't speak Spanish. They're viewed as kind of weird people because they look Mexican, but they don't speak Spanish, and, and nobody understands them, and they make fun of them, and they, they just feel out of place. So it, it, it really is a tragic set of circumstances and and we should pay attention also and i know the the uh, uh u.s mexico foundation has done some work with dreamers in mexico to help them assimilate well that's a um super fascinating discussion that i feel like we could talk for hours about and maybe we'll be lucky enough to have another conversation about it but i just wanted to wrap with you mentioned you know um we talked about some of your work that you did um in the Bush administration. We talked, touched a little bit on Katrina at the beginning. You wanted to have some words about that. Yes. Um, so just to wrap with that, um, go, going back into your mm, kind thank of- Thank you, thank you. Yeah. And, I'm, and you're very kind and thank you very much for, for letting me <laughs> do <course>. that. Um, <laughs> President Bush gets a bum rap for Katrina. And I, I know President Bush well, and I, I, I can just tell you, you, you may not agree with his policies but I've never known a stronger leader. Uh, when Katrina happened, and uh, I remember we were in Miami when it came through as a one, and then when it hit New Orleans, it was, I guess it was a four or five. And Yeah, I remember when it went right over University of Miami. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. we were there. It was, yeah, it was, it was, it was right pretty strong. It was pretty areas. strong. Yeah. So here's the bottom line. There are two factors. One is Washington is a town of perception. Are you perceived as doing a good job? Are you perceived as being a leader? Uh, you know, in the private sector, if you have the numbers, you have the numbers. If you don't have the numbers, you don't have mm. them. Here it's how are you perceived. So someone took a picture of the president looking out Air Force One, and I, you may remember this, looking down at New Orleans, and the picture suggested a president who is to was totally distant. He, he flew above instead of landing. 
President Bush's instincts were put me on the ground, right? But he understood that if the President of the United States goes to New Orleans after Katrina, all of the first responders will have to go take care of the President. Mm -hmm. So that's why he didn't stop. If you look at the days that it took to get money to these places, Sandy uh, in, uh, I think it was Northeast in New Jersey, I mean, oh, devastated Sandy, New yeah. Jersey. I think it was 81 days. Uh, there was another one, and I'm sorry, I don't recall whether it was Hurricane. The name of the hurricane. Yeah, but, but uh, I think it was 60 some days that it took the federal government money to get there. George W. Bush, President George W. Bush, eight days. And having worked in that administration, every single day, it's what are you doing for Katrina? Mm. You know, it's like stop everything, mm. change everything. So, you know, we took the first trade deal, uh, the first domestic trade mission. We took investors to Katrina to, to invest. Now, there was the unfortunate factor of FEMA and the whole drama around uh, Brown, who was the head of FEMA, and it and that became. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because, although yeah, you hear the money got there really quick, and um, y you know that was what you were working on every day. There did seem to be disaster on the ground in terms of response. So what what was that about then? Well, that was you know th that's a fair question, and and the the head of the. The department of FEMA, he was caught saying some unfortunate things uh, in a mic. And then people started realizing, my gosh, we are so unprepared. Mm. We can't move food. Uh, we bought trailers for people to sleep in, but they are um, in the wrong place. Mm. Uh, it was just the execution was going bad. Mm. And that's when uh, he was taken out. And um, and we brought some people in from the military. So yes, there were there were executional issues. Uh, we had not lived through anything like that. Mm. But the thing, that, you know, the, what the president did was he made the decision, reorganized, and pushed forward. But boy, he fought hard to get that check there in eight days, and and he was never given uh, the credit I think he deserves for being uh, one tremendous leader. I think that's a, to wrap it up, I think that brings it full circle. We started talking about, you know, President Trump going to Miami, you know, not for really a policy win, but really just for the perception that people in South Florida love him. Yeah. And then, uh, perception. And right. how optics really, yeah. Right. And then here we have, you know, President Bush didn't go to New Orleans for the right reasons, really. Um, but, but it's yeah. an suffered. optics game. That's that's uh, that's exactly right. So. That's exactly right. And that is a a Good uh, political consideration. Swamp. I'll tell you one, one more story, and yeah, we'll cut of it course. off. Uh, because it is related to Katrina. Mm. Uh, during that time, when you're in government, you go to these receptions and parties, and and at one time they asked me, along with uh, Charlie Rose. Mm to be on the cover of Washington Life. And I was wearing a black tie, and so was he. Mm -hmm. And we this was at a party at an embassy, so it was very convenient. It was going to be done right before the party, right, right before the reception dinner. Very formal. And I said, yes, love it. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> my chief of staff, mm. and I'll mention her name, I'll give her a shout out, mm. Claire Buchan, mm. who was just a godsend because she understood how the government worked mm. and she understood how the administration worked. She had been there the first term. She walked in my office and said, are you kidding? <laughs> right in the middle of Katrina, you're going to come out on the cover of Washington Life, living it up with a tux? <laughs> you know, it, it just was inconsistent. Mm -hmm. And um, so I said, I, I rejected it and I didn't do it. Yeah. But, but that's why it's so good to have these people around you. Swamp who, insiders. Swamp <laughs> insiders who protect you from the alligators. Well, oh, well, that's a, something Karina, well, it's what Karina says all the time, actually. Like, who's advising these people because their their optics are, their optics are wrong. You know, as you mentioned, Ivanka, one of her big, um, one of the first big news stories about her was she went to the alfalfa dinner the night. In that um, aluminum dress with the Muslim ban. Right, the night that they announced that. So people were, you know, stuck at airports uh, in the middle of a crisis and she was partying. Here in DC, so they, you know. Hey, again. Ivanka, shout out. I'll help you out anytime. <laughs> Give us a call, babe. <laughs> now we can't tell you who said that because it's the mystery guest. <laughs> but you've been to her house. <laughs> Thanks a lot for having me. This has been, I mean, I, I could have talked for hours. Thank you, Carlos. Well, hopefully we can maybe talk again sometime because this was super, super interesting, super Thank awesome. You. Yeah, we were so um, thankful that you joined us today and talked to us about some of these really interesting and fascinating subjects so thanks from marcella and from karina <laughs> and thank you for uh thank you to all of our guests that are here and thanks for tuning in yeah thanks for tuning in thanks guys bye i feel like donald trump i say what i want